0: study this morning, we need to make sure we're in fellowship. So we'll have a few moments of silent prayer to give you the opportunity to use 1 John 1.9 if necessary. Scripture teaches that if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Therefore, when we go to the Lord in prayer and we admit or acknowledge any known sin that's in our life, we are immediately cleansed, of all sin, forgiven of all sin. The slate is wiped clean so that we can move forward in our spiritual life. But the goal is not simply to get into fellowship. The goal is to abide in Christ, to walk by the Spirit, to remain in fellowship, because that's the position of spiritual advance. So let's bow our heads together. We'll have a few moments of silent prayer, and then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Lord, what a privilege it is to gather together to be able to study Your Word. That You, the infinite God who created all things in the heavens above and the earth below, have revealed Yourself to us that these words that we have written on the pages of our Bibles were words that were revealed by You throughout the millennia in in the past, that we might know how you think, that we might understand history, that we might know who and what the human race is and what we were created to do, and that we might understand the future destiny of mankind. Now, Father, as we continue our study in the book of Revelation, we pray that you would help us to understand these things. But above all, as we wrap up this study on these seven letters to the seven churches, We pray that God the Holy Spirit would take these truths, these doctrines that we have studied and drive them home in our souls and that we might remember that there is a day of accountability and that we are moving eventually to that time. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Probably nothing tests our stability and our mental attitude more than being the uh, recipients of injustice. The more extreme the injustice, the more difficult it is for us because we all have a certain sense of fair play and we believe that things ought to be done in a certain manner. But living in the devil's world, we often face injustice. We often face evil. We often face victimization betrayal, maltreatment, and these are among the most difficult, the most challenging of circumstances for us as believers to handle. Too often we see believers go through life and if they are mistreated by other believers, if they are betrayed, if they are uh, maltreated, if they are... if they are treated evilly or become the victim, whether it's parents, whether it's children, whether it's business partners, whatever it may be, it's easy for too many to cave in to cynicism, to bitterness, to anger, to resentment. And often, directly or indirectly, God is the one who is blamed. When we face injustice in life, when things don't go the way we think they should or when we are betrayed by those we trust, we don't see some sort of immediate response by God. We often think that God is just asleep at the switch or that somehow people are getting away with evil. People are getting away with that which is perhaps even illegal. But what we learn is we come to the last book in Scripture is that no one gets away with anything. There is accountability. Throughout the centuries, people have struggled with the same problem of accountability. You go to the psalmist, and the psalmist often says, Lord, why is it that the wicked prospers? And the unstated question is, God, if you're really just, if you're really fair, how can they be getting away with it? There doesn't look to be like there's any problem in their life. However, one of the things that we learn from Scripture is that God is just. God is righteous. And in the book of Revelation, a major theme is that of accountability. That there is justice from the throne room of God either in time or in eternity future. No one gets away with anything. That's the one of the themes in the book of Revelation, that there will be judgment. There will be evaluation for Everyone, For the unbeliever, they look forward to the great white throne judgment. The issue there, of course, is not sin, because the penalty for sin was paid for by Christ on the cross. But the issue there is their own righteousness. Do they have righteousness that qualifies to get them into heaven? And no matter what they've done, all their works are evaluated. And if they do not have the proper righteousness, then they are not admitted into heaven. And there is eternal condemnation in the lake of fire. For the believer, the issues are different. Sin is paid for. Heaven is a certain destiny. We have a secure and certain salvation. Our sins have been completely and totally paid for. And we have an eternal position in the royal family of God. However, there is still an evaluation judgment coming. This evaluation judgment is the judgment of the great white throne. Excuse me, this is the judgment of the Bema Seat, the judgment seat of Christ. This lies in the background of what we have studied for the last several lessons, for approximately 60 hours. We have gone through Revelation chapter 2 and Revelation chapter 3, studying the seven letters to these seven churches in Revelation. These are, as I've stated many times, ecclesiastical evaluation reports where God the Son is pictured as the Lord of the church, the head of the church, who is moving among the seven uh, candlesticks, the seven lamps of the seven churches. And it's a picture of the fact that the Lord Jesus Christ is intimately involved in the life of His church, His bride. And there, because He is intimately involved with His church, He knows everything that is going on, and He is the one who is qualified to eventually evaluate and judge the church. These seven letters, these seven evaluation reports are written to give us an idea of what the issues will be, what will be evaluated at the Bema seat, that is the judgment seat of Christ. So to this morning, as we come to a conclusion of our study in these two chapters, I want to go back and review, hit the high points of what we have seen in these chapters as we go through this, one thing that stands out is this principle of eventual evaluation, eventual judgment. And what we learn, what we need to remember is no matter what we see, what we experience in life, whenever there is injustice, whatever happens, whenever there is evil in the world, whenever we are the unfair victim of whatever happens, we must remember what was said by Abraham in Genesis 18:25: Shall not the judge of all the earth do justice. We know that God will eventually make all things right. 2 Corinthians 5.10 says that we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ that each one may receive the things done in the body, that which was practiced, proso, in the body according to what he has done whether good or bad. Now, when we come to these seven letters, they represent trends in the present church age. The church age began on the day of Pentecost, some 50 days after the crucifixion of Christ, and it ends with the future event of the rapture. During this time, we have these seven churches that represent various historical trends, strengths, and weaknesses that are present in every generation. At the beginning of this study, I said that there are those who have studied these chapters and they believe that each of these churches represent a different stage or different era in church history. You'll find a number of prophecy scholars who take that position. Uh, As I have studied this, I don't agree with that conclusion. If you line up all these different uh, scholars and how they periodize history according to these individual churches, they don't all match. They have a lot of difficulty. There's, it doesn't fit a clean pattern. I believe rather that these represent trends that are present. One or more of these uh, congregational uh, trends or types may represent any generation, but you have some of all of these present at every time. Each one of these is promised a future judgment, reward, the uh, incentives to the overcomer, to the victorious believer. And this happens after the rapture of the church. First Thessalonians chapter 4 when the Lord comes back in the air and all believers dead and living are taken to be with Him and thus we will be with the Lord forever. As we look at these evaluation reports, they have... They fit a pattern. Each one has a commission, an opening address. This is written to the church of Ephesus. This is written to the church of Smyrna, to the church at Pergamum, to the church of Thyatira. There is a character citation in each one of these referencing an attribute of the Lord Jesus Christ. Usually this attribute has something to do with the commendation or the condemnation within the evaluation. There's a commendation, a praise for what they are doing right in their spiritual growth and spiritual advance. Of the seven, there are two that have no commendation whatsoever. They are congregations that are in spiritual failure. Fourth, there's a section of condemnation, a warning about a spiritual flaw or spiritual flaws within each of these congregations. There are two that have no condemnation. They are only commended for their spiritual advance. For those that have a spiritual flaw, there is a prescription to recovery, a correction that is given, usually in the, uh, in the vocabulary of repent or watch. It has the idea of changing something. You have a certain mentality or vocabulary or carnal practice that needs to be, that needs to be changed. Then there is a call, that is, a command to listen. Those who have ears, let them hear. That is, those who are really responsive to the Word, who care about the Bible, then listen to what it says and make application. Then there's a challenge, a personal promise of a reward. This is addressed to a category of believer called an overcomer, a victorious believer. Now, the first report that we studied was the one to the church in Ephesus, the church in Ephesus. This is the same church, the same congregation to whom the Apostle Paul addressed the epistle of the Ephesians. But unlike the the epistles written by Paul and Peter and John earlier in the New Testament, these evaluation reports are not designed to teach doctrine related to the spiritual life or the person of Christ to deal with specific issues of false teachers, but these are written in order to challenge churches and the believers in those congregations to push on to spiritual maturity in light of their future evaluation. Every one of us must at some time in the future stand before our Lord, and at that time we will be evaluated for what we have done during this time on earth. The... Letter to the Ephesians references the Lord Jesus Christ as the one who holds the seven stars in His right hand. These are the seven congregations. And who walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. He is pictured as the ever-present Lord who therefore is completely knowledgeable and aware of what is going on in the church and is therefore worthy to judge them. They are commended. For several things. First of all, their labor, their work. This is in relation to their spiritual life. They make it a priority. They are working in relationship to spiritual growth. And by works, I don't mean that they're out trying to gain brownie points with God. But they are coming to Bible class. They're studying the Word. They're putting into practice that which they are learning in their study of the Word. They are... "...praised for their endurance." Key word in the Greek is hupomone, which indicates staying under pressure, that despite uh, adversity, despite difficulties, despite testings and, and temptation, they are sticking with the word. They are enduring. James chapter 1, verses 2-4 through 4 tells us that it is endurance that is the key to growing and maturing as a believer. They are praised because they have no tolerance." For evil, they cannot bear those who are evil. See, we live in a world today that has taken the term tolerance and changed it to a, to where it means approval. So that if you're intolerant, it means that you disapprove and that you are therefore uh, wrong. But the scriptures indicate that we're not to put up with certain kinds of behavior, even within the local church and there should not be any tolerance for this. It doesn't mean that we don't deal with them in grace. It's not saying there should be a legalistic attitude, but that there are sets of standards that apply to the behavior of a local church and, that, and individuals within it, and so we won't put up with that. Furthermore, they evaluate doctrinal claims. So there are those who come into their presence who say that they are apostles, and they test them to see if that is so. One of the things I pointed out as we went through this is that throughout the church there have been standards for those who claim to be communicators of God's word. Even in the Old Testament, Deuteronomy chapter 13, Deuteronomy chapter 18, there were tests for those who claimed to be prophets. In other words, there are standards. You can't just uh, ordain anyone who comes along and says that he has the gift of pastor teacher in fact just possessing the spiritual gift does not qualify one to be ordained he must go through the proper training this last week when we did a study on tuesday night on thanksgiving in the history of thanksgiving in america it has its roots in the puritan theology of english puritanism in the the 16th and 17th centuries and they put a high regard on the education of the pastors and that became a backdrop in a tradition that influenced American Christianity for a couple of hundred years in fact the uh, Puritan pastors often referred to those who were not educated and not trained as dumb dogs D-U-M-M-E-D-O-G-G-S Loved the way they used to spell before it got standardized. But that emphasized a standard that if a man was going to get in the pulpit and teach the Word, he had to go through the proper training. Now, that doesn't always mean that a man is going to be able to go to seminary and get a Master's of Theology or a Doctorate of Theology, but that he should go through some sort of rigorous training period where he studies the Word, learns the Word under academic academic discipline so they evaluated any claims of those who came along and said they were uh, they were apostles they persevered under trial all of these were things that they were commended for these are these are virtues that all of us should focus on we should ask ourselves a question in terms of application where we stand with regard to each of these qualities Our labor in the spiritual life and spiritual growth, endurance in testing or trial, our tolerance for evil. Do we just put up with it? Do we justify it, rationalize it, or is there a firm standard in our conscience? Uh, Evaluation of doctrinal claims. Do we know enough doctrinally to be able to evaluate uh, claims that are made, teachings that we hear? And do we persevere under testing? Now, all of these are good qualities, but there's something that's been lost in this particular congregation, and that was one last element. They had not grown weary. They pressed on. But under condemnation, they had lost their priority love for God. When we read in the text that they lost their first love, this is not first in terms of beginning, but this is first in terms of priority. Uh, love for God comes into its full bloom as we grow to maturity but if we fail to grow to maturity if we fail to press on then we lose that love for God now love for God indicates a depth to that personal relationship we have with God through the Lord Jesus Christ it's not just the Simple relationship that an immature or young believer has with God, but as we grow and mature, as you learn the Word, as you learn more about who God is, it develops a quality of love that is uh, related to our maturity and our understanding of who God is. You can't love someone you don't know, and you can't know God unless you study His Word. Last week I referenced the passage in in John chapter 14 when Jesus rebuked Philip because Philip had wanted him to wanted Jesus to show him the Father and so that he could know him better and Jesus said, "Philip, how long have you been with me and you don't know me?" After 3 years, Philip still did not really know the Lord and we can't love him unless we know him. So this priority love has to do with maturity. And because they had failed in the Ephesian church to, to grow to maturity, they were being challenged in regard, to their in, in regard to the incentive in verse 7. There we read, "...to him who overcomes, I will give to eat from the tree of life." which is in the midst of the paradise of God. Now, this term, tree of life, can't refer to something that would give eternal life because they already have that as a result of their salvation. But eating throughout Scripture is used in reference to fellowship. It's used in terms of rapport. And so by eating of the tree of life, it indicates an special intimacy, a special level of fellowship with God. And this tree of life is in the midst of the paradise of God. And when we studied this, I pointed out that the term paradise is a Persian loan word. And the concept of paradise came out of a Persian practice that whenever the Persian kings went anywhere, they always had a special private garden, an area where they could go and relax, an area where there were just a few choice people allowed to come and to Uh, relax in the presence of the king. And so this concept of the paradise of God indicates a special place within heaven that is where a certain class of overcomer believers can go and have special intimacy and relationship with God. This idea is reinforced again and again as we go through these overcomer passages. Then we came to our second letter in verse 8 of chapter 2 to the church In Smyrna, this is the first congregation of whom nothing negative is said. They are praised because they are in the midst of tribulation. They are experiencing poverty. They are uh, attacked by those who claim to be Jews but are not. And as they go through this adversity, it will result in the martyrdom of several of them. They will experience a special time of testing and the admonition is that they are to be faithful until death. So they are, comm- they are commended for the way they have handled adversity. They are commended for the way they have handled persecution and hostility. And they are commended because of the fact that they will experience martyrdom. That is, there are some among them that will die because they will not give up. They will not compromise their testimony, their belief in the Lord Jesus Christ. So they are commended for that. The incentive relates to this. They are encouraged to be faithful unto death, recognizing that martyrdom may come, and they are to be consistent as they have already been consistent. They are to be faithful. They are not going to grow weary. If they do so, they are promised the crown of, of life, This is in verse 10, be faithful until death and I will give you the crown of life. This is one of four crowns mentioned in the scripture as rewards. And they are also promised that there will be no loss of rewards. This is the meaning of that last phrase in verse 11, he who overcomes shall not be hurt by the second death. Now, before we go on, let me refer to the four crowns I mentioned earlier. We've studied these. There's a crown of righteousness mentioned in 2 Timothy 4, 6-8 for those who have grown to maturity and have developed experiential righteousness in their spiritual life. There is the crown of life, which is mentioned here and in James 1.12. This is not related to eternal life, which is a possession of every believer, but is related to the quality of their life that they have achieved in term, as a result of their growth to spiritual uh, spiritual maturity. Then there is the crown of glory mentioned in 1 Peter 5:4 for pastors and and leaders of local churches who have uh, pressed on to spiritual maturity. And then there is the victor's crown described by Paul in 1 Corinthians 9. 24 to 27. Now, whenever you study this, there are many books, many pastors who reference five crowns. The fifth crown is indicated in 1 Thessalonians 2:19. I don't think this is a crown, though, not in the sense of the others. Here, Paul simply uses the metaphor, the imagery of a crown, to indicate the the joy he will have from those uh, he has witnessed to, those who have responded to his teaching who will be with him in the presence of the Lord. In 1 that's 2.19 he says, For what is our hope or joy or crown of rejoicing? See, it's the imagery that's here. It's not a literal crown. Then, with reference to that last phrase, the phrase that reads, He who overcomes shall not be hurt by the second death. This has caused a lot of confusion for people because the second death is indicated in Scripture as the lake of fire. And in this... We went to Revelation 20 verses 6 and 7 to show that what this is talking about is a destruction of non-distributed rewards. Revelation 20 verse 6 tells us that the context is inheritance and rewards. Blessed is holy is he who has part in the or has an inheritance literally in the first resurrection. Over such the second death has no power, but they shall be priests of God and of Christ and shall reign with him a thousand years. See, the focus is on that distribution of a reward and reigning. In verse 7, the issue is the, the, goes on to explain that inheritance. But then in verse 8 we read, The cowardly, unbelieving, abominable, murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars shall have their part in the lake which burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. See, many people misread this to think that part means destiny or role. But the Greek word for part there is the word miros, which indicates the inheritance share of a will. And that's how it should be translated, that those who continue in rank carnality with no spiritual growth, no spiritual advance, their share, their inheritance portion goes into the lake of fire. That's what that means. And so once we understand the concept, we realize that what we have in, in Revelation 2.11 is a promise that the overcomer will not have his rewards destroyed in the lake of fire. doesn't mean that the person goes to the lake of fire, but their are rewards because they're not distributed. Because of failure to grow in the Christian life, that those rewards would be destroyed in the lake of fire. Then we came to the third church, the church in Pergamum. The church in Pergamum and the Lord Jesus Christ is represented as the judge, the one who comes with a sharp two-edged sword, not the machaira sword, but the Romphia sword, the large Greek-Roman uh, broadsword that was used to uh, indicate violence and judgment. And the Lord comes as a judge to this worldly compromising church. In Pergamum, there they are commended, even though they have compromised there there is positive spiritual growth in that congregation. They are commended for holding fast in a hostile environment, much like Christians today live in a an environment in this world that is hostile and increasingly hostile to Christianity. Uh, they were uh, pressured by the culture around them to conform, and yet they held fast to Christ's name. They did not deny His faith, even when it meant martyrdom, as in the case of one mentioned there named Antipas. They did not die Christ, deny Christ. They did not deny uh, doctrine. But nevertheless, they did compromise. They were condemned for compromising with paganism. As indicated by compromise with the doctrine of Balaam, that is, uh, which led them to, uh, eating things sacrificed to idols, committing sexual immorality, and also the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which the Lord says, I hate. The challenge was to repent. Now, I want you to note something. There's some people who think you have to repent. Before you can, be forgiven of your sins. That's putting the cart before the horse. Scripture says if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. But if you sin again, a nanosecond later, you're back out of fellowship. And what if you keep committing the same sin? Let's say you're in a situation where your best friend or spouse or someone you care about has just betrayed you. They just stabbed you in the back. And every half second you're reminded of this, and so you are angry, you're resentful, you're mad, you're bitter, and you confess it. Well, you don't have to give up on this. You don't have to reach a point of repentance before you can be forgiven. Trouble is, you'll confess the sin and all of a sudden you'll... Get have that sin of bitterness again, you're back out of fellowship a nanosecond later, and you go through this cycle, maybe for a long time, but that's how spiritual growth takes place. You don't repent first and then get forgiveness. Scripture is very clear. You just confess your sin, you're forgiven, even if you're back out of fellowship a nanosecond later. But what we have to reach a point of recognition in, is this command to repent. This is why, throughout these uh, evaluation reports, we have this command to repent. It means to change. That it's not enough, just to confess your sins. That is enough to get you, a recovery. It's enough to get forgiveness. But it's not enough, for spiritual growth. Spiritual growth means, abiding in Christ. Spending time in fellowship. Walking by the Spirit. That that is where repentance comes in. Repentance isn't remorse for sin. It's not feeling sorry for your sins. It's not regret. All that may accompany it, but that's not what it means. It means to change, to change behavior patterns, to recognize that 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 bitterness, that anger, that resentment, that cynicism that comes up every time you think of that situation is wrong, so you have to through the power of God, the Holy Spirit, and the application of doctrine, change that mental attitude. That can only happen when you're in fellowship. So you have to confess your sins first, and then as you're back in fellowship, as you apply doctrine, as you grow, we come to apply the Word to those uh, sins and deal with them and remain or abide in fellowship. So the challenge for them is to Uh, to repent they uh, they're to repent or there's a warning Christ says I will come quickly and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth he will bring discipline upon those who are responsible for the compromise in that congregation then there is the incentive he who has an ear let him hear what the spirit says to the churches to him who overcomes, that is, to the believer who overcomes and has victory over this problem, the one who tr- who repents, who changes, who grows to spiritual maturity, to him who overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna to eat. Three things are mentioned here in terms of incentives. Hidden manna to eat, a white stone, and a new name on the white stone. Now, to what does this refer? Well, again... The hidden manna indicates eating. This is related to fellowship. As we've studied this in the past, we see that there is a special intimate fellowship for victorious believers uh, with the Father in heaven. This is, part of, this is related back to eating from the tree of life in the paradise of God back in the letter to the Ephesians. But the idea here is of some sort of privileged access and nourishment in the kingdom of heaven. Then the second aspect is being given a white stone, a white stone, and the idea here is that in the in the uh, Roman culture, wealthy families would often give a stone with a person's name written on it that would give them access into the full hospitality of the family. That if they came to them and presented this sort of as an ID card, then it would allow them to come into the home, that they would be admitted into uh, their presence, and that they would receive a special a special treatment. And this was also true in some of the temples in the ancient world, where those who had a white stone with their name on them would be given special access to feasts in honor of the gods. So the idea of having a white stone with a new name written on it would indicate special access and privilege in heaven. Then we come to our fourth fourth congregation. We've looked at Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, and now Thyatira. Here the Lord Jesus Christ is presented as the Son of God who has eyes like a flame of fire and feet like fine brass. This indicates purification. This indicates judgment. And He comes to the church of Thyatira, another church that has compromised with uh, paganism. The church of Thyatira is located to the southeast of Pergamum. It was a place where they had temples to various Uh, Greco-Roman deities, Apollos, was the chief deity in Thyatira along with a number of others such as Artemis and um, the Sibylle Attis uh, mystery cult. And as a result of this, there was compromise with these pagan ways of thinking. So we have the Lord Jesus Christ who is going to come and judge this congregation. Now, they're commended for various things. Even in congregations where there are problems, there are those who are advancing to spiritual maturity, those who are demonstrating true Christian love for one another. So they are commended for love. They're commended for Christian service. They've grown to maturity. They're involved in the local church serving in various capacities. Remember, Christian service is not a means of spiritual growth, but a result of spiritual growth. There are those who exhibit faith, that is the faith rest drill. They are trusting in God and growing to maturity. They have patience, endurance once again. They are sticking with the word in times of testing and times of trial And their works are increasing. That is, their divine good is increasing, which indicates that there are those who are truly pressing forward to spiritual maturity. However, there are failures. There are condemnations. They've compromised with the pressure to conform to paganism. This is so often the problem that we have today with too many believers, that in order to get by at work, in order to make it, Uh, in the university in order to be accepted by a certain social crowd, they have to compromise their uh, Christian biblical standards. And this is the same thing that happened in the church of Thyatira. But God gave them time to repent of these things, but there was not repentance. See, God always precedes grace with judgment according to verses 21 and 22 and the warning is that if there is no repentance there will be divine serious divine discipline on the congregation but the incentive is to hold fast to hold fast to keep pressing to maturity and the victor is promised that he will receive eventually power over the nations. When the Lord Jesus Christ returns to establish his kingdom, then he will rule over them with a rod of iron. And we will be co-rulers and co-reigners with the Lord Jesus Christ in his in His kingdom. And we'll also receive the morning star, which is some sort of uh, entitlement that we'll have In the kingdom, some sort of special recognition giving us special uh, privilege. So the incentives are to hold fast, that we'll have power over the nations, and receive the morning star. This is a title that is used of the Lord Jesus Christ, and so when it is applied here to this special category of believers, it is an indication that they have overcome just as the Lord overcomes. It's a sign of their authority and their position and their privilege as co-reigners, co-rulers with the Lord Jesus Christ. Then we come to the fifth congregation that at Sardis. Again, this is this is a congregation of whom nothing good is said. Nothing good is said. They are a congregation of spiritual failures. And so the Lord comes to them and again reemphasizes the fact that it is the Lord Jesus Christ who has the seven spirits. That is a term indicating he has the fullness of the Holy Spirit and the seven stars. He's intimately involved with the angels who are uh, evaluating and recording the works of these churches. And he says, "I I know your works, that you have a name, that you are alive, But you are dead. See, at one time, this was a spiritually thriving congregation. They had a reputation, but they no longer had it. They no longer were growing. They were no longer spiritually vital. They had a reputation of life, but they were in carnal death. They were living according to the flesh, and they had compromised with paganism. So there is a call to remember. That which was before. Remember therefore how you have received and heard, hold fast and repent. They are to change. And then they are encouraged to watch. They are to be watchful and to strengthen the things which remain. So they are called to watch and to evaluate their own spiritual growth. So they are condemned because they have they are trying to live the Christian life but in their own power and their own effort, and they need to change. If they do, there are incentives for these overcomers. They will wear white garments, which indicate some sort of special uniform that would identify the overcomer as one who overcame. They are promised that their name would not be blotted out from the book of life now this is again one of those interpretations we spent some time on to show that this doesn't mean a loss of salvation actually this is a figure of speech called a latotes indicating a reinforcement of an idea that you certainly will not have your name blotted out of the book of life not that they could but that this would not happen in fact in uh, Thyatira there was a record of the citizens and those who those who Uh, had achieved greatness or some sort of honor, had their name written in gold. And so it's not the idea that they would have their name taken away, but is just a statement of a positive by stating the negative. Furthermore, they would be praised before God and the angels. The Lord says uh, that I will confess his name before my father, and before His angels. So at the judgment seat of Christ, there will be recognition of spiritual achievement before God the Father and the angels. Then we come to the sixth of the seven churches, the church at Philadelphia. The church at Philadelphia, and there the Lord is referred to as the one who is holy and true, the one who has the key of David, a reference to the Davidic covenant, the one who opens and no one shuts and shuts and no one opens. Because He is the Davidic Messiah, He is the one who is the source of eternal life. And He is the only one who gives life. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one can come to the Father except by Me. Now, this church has no negatives, no condemnations, only commendations like the earlier church at Sardis. They are praised because they have taken advantage of the opportunities that God has given them. They are an evangelistic, missionary-minded congregation. They have spiritual strength. They are obedient in applying the Word of God. That's the same message that James has in the book of James, that we're to be not just hearers of the Word, but appliers, taking what we learn in Bible class and on Sunday morning and then applying it Consistently, so they're obedient, they're consistent in applying the word. They had not denied Christ, even though there was persecution, and they were enduring. They were consistent in pressing on to spiritual maturity. Furthermore, as a result of this, they are promised that they will be kept from the hour of trial. We studied that and had an extensive study of the doctrine of the rapture, and that this promise indicated that church-age believers would not go through that time known as the uh, great tribulation, the time of Jacob's trouble, the 70th year of Daniel's 70 weeks. And there are some incentives that are given. And these incentives are based on them holding fast, continuing with what they have done. And they are warned, hold fast what you have that no one may take your crown. And then in verse 12, he who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple. Of my God. And that was a figure of speech for someone who has a position, someone who has prominence, someone who has a role to play. And this is in the temple of God in the millennial kingdom. And he shall go out no more, once again, indicating a special position, a privilege, and access to God in the millennial kingdom. Furthermore, he says, I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, which is the New Jerusalem which comes down out of heaven, and I will write on him my new name. These three things, name of my God, the name of the city of my God, and my new name indicates a special relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ, special access into the New Jerusalem, special access to God and the temple. This is for the one who responds positively to these warnings and is an overcomer in their spiritual life. Then we come to the last church. This is the lukewarm church, of whom nothing good is said. They are the neither hot nor cold, and because they are neither hot nor cold but lukewarm, the Lord Jesus Christ says, I will vomit you out of my mouth. Because they're not usable, because they're not serviceable, because they're operating in carnality, they are not usable by the Lord. The idea of hot or cold isn't hot being positive and cold being negative, but the idea that hot water is usable, cold water is usable, but lukewarm water just makes you bilious. So they are not usable. Here the Lord is referred to as the stable one, the amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. A lukewarm believer is undependable. He is unstable he is vacillating and that is the picture of this congregation and their emphasis is on their own their own um, their own efforts they are self-sufficient so they are condemned for being lukewarm they are condemned for having compromised with the pagan system around them and they are condemned for being self-sufficient they think they are rich they think they have no need of anything spiritually. They But the Lord says, I want you to know that you are truly wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. But because of your arrogance, you think you have something when you have nothing. Therefore, they are challenged to repent, that is, to change. The problem is that the Lord has been excluded from the life of the church, so they need to let the Lord be the centerpiece of their lives again. That's why the Lord says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears My voice and opens the door, I will come into him and dine with him and he with Me. This is not a salvation verse. This is a verse for fellowship, so that the Lord would enter in and once again be an intimate part of the life of the church. To those who respond positively to the message, there are incentives. And the incentive here is to be a co-ruler, a co-reigner with the Lord Jesus Christ. To him who overcomes, I will grant to sit with me on my throne, as I also overcame and sat down with my Father on His throne. Now the challenge to us as we go through these seven letters is to recognize that this isn't just written to first century Christians, but it is written to every congregation, every believer down through the centuries. As we go through the positive traits here, we see some of our positive traits. As we go through the negative traits, we also realize some of our negative traits. And the challenge is the same for us. And that is to repent, that is to change where we need to change, to respond to the message of the Scriptures and to apply these truths in our lives so that we too can be victorious believers. Because the promise is just as much for us as it is for them is that if we are victorious in our spiritual life, then there is, there are special rewards, there are special privileges and position in the eternal kingdom that will be ours because we have matured enough to have the capacity, the righteousness to handle those positions. But it depends on our volition. It depends on whether or not we're truly interested in serving the Lord. If you have a frame of reference that is just limited by time, limited by what's going to happen next week or next year or next month, then you're you're going to fall apart. Because what's demanded here is an eternal perspective, a recognition that's what's going on in these 40, 50, 60, 70, 80 years that you have on this life, that that is going to determine what's going to happen when you arrive in heaven. And... That's why each one of these closes with the admonition he who has an ear let him hear what the spirit says to the churches not just to listen not just to know but to respond with application as James says don't be a hearer of the word only but a hearer and an applier now this is the these two chapters chapters 2 and 3 focus on the future the future evaluation of believers that there is a time when the judge of all the earth the judge of all of history will evaluate us but there is also a coming judgment for unbelievers a judgment on satan a judgment on the nations of this world and this comes during the tribulation and the concluding judgments that are mentioned in the book of revelation this judgment Begins in chapter 4. That's how Revelation ties all these loose ends together. And we see how God brings everything to in history to a glorious culmination. In terms of the validation of his righteousness and integrity. In history and in relation to the angelic conflict. So we'll come back next week. And begin our study in Revelation chapter 4. With our heads bowed. And our eyes closed. Father, we're indeed grateful that we have this opportunity to look at Your Word and to be reminded that there is a time of future evaluation for us at the judgment seat of Christ. That though our sins are paid for in full, and that sin will never be an issue again, the issue for us now that we're saved is what are we going to do with that spiritual life that we've been given? What are we going to do with the Word of God that we have been given? What are we going to do in terms of application? No generation in history has been given as much as we have been given. There's no body of believers that has as much as we have. There is no time in history where there has been as much available biblical knowledge as there is today. And yet, sadly, there are too many believers who take it for granted and they just come and do their time on Sunday morning and walk away not realizing the significance of what is going on, that this is our time of preparation for the future. Father, we also pray that if there's anyone here this morning that's unsure of their salvation, uncertain of their eternal destiny, that they would take this time to make that sure and certain. Perhaps there's never been a time in your life when you realize that Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins, that he paid the penalty for your sins that when he hung there on that cross of Calvary, that he had you in mind and he paid for your sins. But that payment can be applied to you through your faith in Jesus Christ. When you trust in Christ as your Savior, Christ's righteousness is given to you so that you can have eternal life. All that you need to do is simply trust, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved. It's not a matter of doing good. It's not a matter of reforming your life. It's not a matter of uh, joining a church or being involved in ritual. It's simply a matter of trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ as your personal Savior. This is your opportunity to secure your eternal destiny. Now, Father, we pray that you would take the things that we have studied this morning and that God the Holy Spirit would make them clear to us as we reflect on these things today and the days to come.